Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmerzday, May 11th, 2020. On the show today, news, and we look at Disney's patents, which look to me like Teddy Ruxpin meets Westworld. In our main segment, Jim finishes up the history of the classic Fantasyland attraction, Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. Let's get started by bringing in the man who points out that Ursula didn't have to give Ariel human legs, so maybe she was never evil at all. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? <laughs> wow. Okay. They- Nothing in the contract says human legs, Jim. That's all I'm saying. And how long have you been representing the Sea Witch, Len? <laughs> <laughs> I think we've talked about this before, but she's the uh, uh, she's the most empowered of the female characters within the Disney universe, I believe. Yeah, and I don't know if you ever got to see the, the Broadway musical version of it, but that version, they're very clear. Ursula and Triton are brother and sister. So it, it mm-hmm. adds a whole nother, la- you know, it's Auntie Ursula that does this deal with, with Ariel. So it's like, eh. I'm thinking, I'm thinking one day years from now, when Disney is desperate for movie ideas, they're going to do to Ursula what they did with Maleficent and, and just present her side of the story. Wow. Okay. I'm telling you right now. You do know that what was we were literally five minutes away from the live action version of The Little Mermaid with Melissa McCarthy <laughs> playing <laughs> Ursula. They were five days out from shooting in London when the COVID thing came oh, down. I'm thinking a couple of really good musical numbers, mm-hmm. you know, that explain Ursula's side of the story will will change the entire perception of her character. I'm convinced. Okay. Well, get your copy of the Broadway soundtrack. You'll learn. She's not necessarily a nice person, but... Misunderstood. Yeah. There we go. All right, Jim. Let's do a uh, shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.BandCamp.com. Jim, for the third week in a row, we have a record number of show subscribers. Thanks to all of you. And special thanks to new subscribers, Adam E., Matt S., and Kelly Kilowatt H., and longtime subscribers, Stephen P., Gordon U., and Chewboxia who had a hand in one of Disney's biggest secrets ever. Jim, back in the days before pesky workplace ethic rules, these folks were college program cast members whose job was to be injected with miniaturized ride vehicles for the old Body Wars ride at the Wonders of Life Pavilion in Epcot. That's right, Jim. It wasn't a simulator. It was real life. (laughs) (laughs) Why'd they do it, Jim? Apparently, Disney promised them a lollipop after every shot. True story. So they started each day, they, they went down the costuming, they picked up their outfit, they went to the attraction, and then, and then somebody jammed a splinter into each of them? Is, is that how this worked? It, again, it, it, back in the 80s, workplace regulations were a lot more lax. <sighs> okay, wow. <laughs> Thank you, OSHA. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right, Jim, let's, uh, let's do the news. I guess the big news this week, last week, was the uh, earnings call. That Disney did for the uh, their second quarter of 2020, which their quarter starts in October. Mm-hmm. So the second quarter for them is January, February, and March of 2020. Yeah. <laughs> the, the earnings news was not good. No, no. A billion-dollar loss coming out of the parks and resorts division. And the parks were only closed for two weeks, in a little over two weeks in March, right? Yeah. What was fascinating in real time during the call was watching people do the math. It's like, so how much did they lose per day? And it's like, oh, dear Lord. Were you surprised about the uh, Shanghai announcement? Or? I was not, no. So we had heard more than a couple of weeks ago mm-hmm. that cast members were 
looking at ways that they could do things like social distancing mm-hmm. in the parks. There were um, so let's let's go through the Shanghai thing. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, it's going to reopen May 11th, mm-hmm. so today, and there are some new operational procedures. So most rides, some shows, and shopping and restaurants. Resume operation with controlled attendance. We'll talk about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of the interactive things, the attractions, the experiences, children's plays area, play areas, theater shows mm-hmm. also will be closed. That was the interesting thing for me. So theater shows, they're not even trying to do mm-hmm. social distancing. They're not going to do like every other row and every third seat or whatever. Mm-hmm. They're just going to keep them closed. Both the state of Georgia and the state of Texas are allowing movie theaters to open and most of the, the major theater chains are, are sitting this out because of basically what the CDC says is that one of the best places to catch COVID-19 is an enclosed space with recycled air where you're crowded in among others, which basically describes any movie theater or, you know, any live theater setting. Yeah. Bars, restaurants, indoor concerts, things mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. I did note that, uh, that Bob Chapek said that Although the government is capping Shanghai capacity at 30% mm-hmm. or around 24,000 people in the park, mm-hmm. they said that initially they're going to operate at a far lower capacity than 30%. We talked about this, I think, two shows ago mm-hmm. where we said that Orange County in Florida had a phase one cap of 50% of capacity. And I think you and I pointed out that 50% of the park's capacity for the Magic Kingdom is a huge number, mm-hmm. like 40, 45,000 people. And there was no way Disney was going to let that many people into the Magic Kingdom to start with. Not at all. But though, I want to point out the historical significance of we actually had a Disney CEO reveal what the capacity of a theme park was. Yeah. That doesn't happen that they shared that it's 80,000. That's literally like the nuclear launch codes of the theme park industry. <laughs> so It's um, right up there with uh, with daily attendance numbers. That, yeah. yeah. I, I suspect they're going to have to disclose those numbers for the domestic parks at some point, just because they're going to have to tell the organizations that are the governments that are running or that are have oversight of the parks, Mm -hmm. what that number is, right? So if Disney says, for example, you know, we're going to let 30,000 people into the magic kingdom or whatever the number is, Mm -hmm. Orange County is going to want to know that 30,000 is less than 50% of the capacity of the park. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be public record. So we should, we should eventually learn what the actual capacity of the parks is. I'm going to be fascinated to see if that actually happens. Cause remember when Disney acquired Marvel back in 2009, part of the agreement with Universal to get the Marvel superheroes into Islands of Adventure is they had to have, you know, daily attendance figures and what the merch sales were and that sort of thing. And, you know, it was one of these things where Universal immediately raised up its hand, a conflict of interest, hang on. And so yeah. they effectively siloed that info off from Disney. I mean, Marvel could still have access to it, but only certain folks within Marvel. So I'm going to be very intrigued to see, given how competitive things are down in Orlando, or for that matter, in Southern yeah. California, how that info gets shared. Uh, a couple of other things coming out of Shanghai. No character meet and greets, mm-hmm. obviously. No parades and fireworks, which we all expected, at yep. least uh, they said during the first phase of reopening. Mm-hmm. Also, everyone is going to wear masks. Again, not a surprise. The thing that I thought was interesting mm-hmm. in the Shanghai announcement was this idea that, A, there would be a limited number of tickets available every day for admission, which I guess follows from the capacity thing. Mm-hmm. But B, you have to sign up for the tickets. 
And I'm trying to figure out how they would do that in the United States. Mm -hmm. So they, they could limit the number of tickets mm -hmm. available each day, right? That's easy enough to do, right? Mm -hmm. But how do you, how would you charge annual pass holders in a scenario where you were also limiting admission? Mm -hmm. That would be tricky. Have you been paying attention to what SeaWorld is doing? Uh, charging their annual pass holders for even though the parks aren't open? Actually, the, the, just in the past week, they announced that they were extending the, the annual passes for free, but they were also moving people up to the next level. Maybe that's what we'll see Disney do. Something to the effect of these are circumstances beyond our control. Let's extend your pass, say, six months past its, its expiration date and... But see, the problem is, especially in California. That's everyone. Yeah. yeah that's yeah. Like um, more than half of the. And so the other problem that they run into mm -hmm. is they continue deferring income while they're doing that. So right now, they've suspended the monthly payment program for annual pass holders. And no one's buying a new annual pass right now. So they're not making that money. Mm -hmm. and Disney's already said, to their credit, they're going to extend out the annual passes for anyone who's paid for them for the duration of the time that the parks are closed. So if the parks are closed for three months, mm -hmm. they'll tack three more months onto the end of your annual pass. But what that means is they won't get new revenue from people who are renewing their annual passes for twice the number of months the parks are closed. Because mm -hmm. if the parks are closed for three months, they're going to give you an extra three months. It means they go six months without you having to renew your annual pass. Mm -hmm. At some point... I don't know that they can forego that much revenue for that long. Mm -hmm. And so something else will have to happen. Especially to your point in Southern California where you you can't charge people for an annual pass. I don't think you can charge people for an annual pass and then limit capacity substantially more than what it was when they bought the pass. Because you, you could make an argument that when you bought the pass, you had a reasonable expectation around what the capacity of the parks would be and your ability to access the parks, right? Disney can't then say, you know what, we're going to cut capacity by 80% and still charge you full price. That's that's not going to happen. And I don't think Disney would do it. Mm -hmm. But th there's something they have, they have to figure out in the United States that they don't have to figure out in Shanghai. No, I, what I'm saying. I agree. I agree. You know, particularly given our litigious nature. Though, if you've been following Mitch McConnell's efforts to effectively limit the amount of lawsuits that result from COVID and the like, you got to wonder. I think in some cases, like theme parks, that has to happen. Yeah. There right. has to be some sort of limitation on liability. I'm not saying Disney, Disney you know, can get away with anything, mm -hmm. but there's going to be some acknowledgement of risk if you go to a theme park. No, right? and I, I agree. I agree. But before we move on here, you did see the part when they were talking about characters and that sort of thing. They mentioned that there was going to be not a parade, but a character procession. I see. I I think I think they mistranslated. I think the word is stampede in Mandarin. <laughs> okay. Because in my head it sounds better, Jim. There we Character go. Stampede. There we go. And they also talked about cast members and guests would have to wear masks. The face characters would not, but they would only be observable from a distance. So Snow White lived through the plague apparently in the Middle Ages, <laughs> but and the dwarves too. But uh, but we're not. And so they're, it's not character appropriate for them to have masks. I, I therefore they won't. I, I don't know what to tell you. Can I, you imagine the conversation? with the equity actors <laughs> playing Snow White. <laughs> Look, you're not getting a mask, kid. <laughs> Rapunzel's about to be very popular because she at least has a tower to lean out of. 
The other thing in Shanghai that I thought was interesting, or two other things. One, mm-hmm. no on-site ticket sales, mm-hmm. which I think Disney could totally do mm-hmm. but in both parks, right? You, but the flip side of that coin is that you have to register in advance to access the park. So in Shanghai, you have to provide basic personal information, name, phone number, some sort of ID mm-hmm. after you purchase a ticket and before you get to the park. And then Disney will give you a code, mm-hmm. a QR code for your phone, which you have to display to get in the park. And I guess that's for contact tracing. Yeah. I think we, we talked earlier about oh, this whole you got to walk before you can run situation. So Disney yeah. Town had reopened. And again, the, the whole QR code to the effect of you provided us with your medical information. We know your history. So feel free to come in or stay home, yeah. you know. I think we could get people in the U.S. I think everyone would go along with providing that basic information. If you're a Disney Resort guest, you've already given it, mm-hmm. right? Or if you've got a magic band, you've already given it, mm-hmm. right? Some in, some in. I don't think that that's too much of a stretch. In Shanghai, there's apparently a government-issued um, health code, yeah. which the United States doesn't have. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be – I think that's the biggest barrier mm-hmm. that we have so far. We don't know whether people have the, have the virus or not. Mm-hmm. Although they, uh, they said in Shanghai they're still going to do temperature screenings. Mm-hmm. I think at this point where we're dealing with the initial outbreak, there's you know, the American attitude. And again, I live in New Hampshire, the live for your die state. Given the number of bozos who are walking around without masks in my state, it's also the live free and die state. Exactly. But there's a certain resistance now. But Anthony Fauci has been talking about the second outbreak isn't an if, it's a when. Uh, Sure. And you got to wonder when we're dealing with the next wave of this stuff. There's stuff that we won't do now that I wonder that, you know, if we do get hit with a second wave, it's like, you need my health information? Absolutely. Here it is. Take it. I think that's the big concern mm-hmm. in California, that they want to make sure that this thing is, is well covered before they reopen the parks. And that's why I think it'll be at least the fall before Disneyland reopens. I still think Disney World sooner rather than later mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and definitely before California. But I think California is, is being much more... Conservative when it comes to reopening the uh, parks. Speaking of which, mm-hmm. uh, I saw, I think today, that uh, Disneyland Paris indicates they're going to be closed through at least mid-July, so at least two more months. Yeah. Also, did you see that uh, Disney Cruise Line is sending the magic back to Europe with a uh, crew to repatriate them and then sending the fantasy to the Caribbean to return those uh, those crews? So I don't think DCL sailing anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Wow. It's interesting to have Disney making these moves now because I think just this morning, they I, was it Carnival? Carnival announced they're going to start cruising uh, August 1st. <laughs> wow. Sure. <laughs> the dysentery surprise cruise. Okay, yes, let's, <laughs> let's, let's do that. Your words, Jim, not mine. Okay, so... Uh, one other thing coming out of the earnings call, uh, Disney said that they are going to reduce capital spending. Mm-hmm. Uh, so things like new construction and refurbishments by uh, $900 million. That seems like it would be any construction project that isn't very close to being done and any refurbishments that uh, probably already had, hadn't started. So my guess here is Ratatouille probably gets finished, but nothing else. Yeah. So what, how does that affect... Planning for the 50th. 
which is now what, 16 months away? From what we saw going forward, I remember Harmonious was supposed to open October 1st of uh, this year. <laughs> there you go. By the way, Jim, let me pause here and say the entire world has gone to hell since we got rid of Illuminations. <laughs> I'm just pointing this out. <laughs> I'm <laughs> correlation, not causation, Jim, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Okay. I can buy into that. All right. Everyone's got a theory. That one's mine. There you go. Go ahead. All right. Uh, so Harmonious was supposed to start October 1st, uh, 2020. Yeah. And this fall, you were going to start to see the first wave of promotion for the 50th anniversary, which are going to kick off January 1st. And then, you know, when they find Disney tradition of year long celebration that it gets extended 15 months, 18 months, as of right now, the thinking is let's revert to the 1996 plan where the the celebration actually started on uh, Disney World's actual birthday. We started on October 1st, 2021. Okay. We go with a 15-month run. So it would be starting on October 1st of 2021 through the end of 2022. They were counting on Tron uh, Light Cycle to be the big draw for the kingdom. So, and you know that's paused. That's got to be finished. Mm-hmm. And you know the Guardians over at Epcot, yeah. And Guardians is now especially hammered because that was one of the other things Chapek was talking about. That in addition to the parks, they're still sorting out how to continue to shoot blockbusters for oh, right, yeah. Marvel and. Everybody on set except those in front of the cameras are wearing masks. You know, how do we do this? And they were counting on shooting the footage that would be featured in Cosmic Rewind when Guardians 3 was oh. in production. And now that okay. slid. I mean. Yeah, and you're not going to be able to get 100 people together just to shoot some uh, some theme park no, footage. that's it. Exactly. So a new plan now, regroup. 50th anniversary kicks off October 1st. But again, all of this is fluid based on the fact that, you know, this is when we're talking about opening the park, but I keep hearing from folks at Disney, we make money in Florida, but we make decisions in California. And, you know, we're constantly looking over our shoulder and it's like, what is Governor Newsom saying? And what can we do in Florida, but still be respectful to, you know, what's being asked of us back here in California? That, and that that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, let me let me pivot on the on the movie thing that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. We know that both Disney and Universal have gone direct to video mm-hmm. or uh, or shortened the theater runs mm-hmm. of their movies because of the the virus. So Universal did it with Trolls World Tour. Mm-hmm. Disney did it with Onward. Mm-hmm. But in the last week, uh, we started to hear from cinema owners mm-hmm. like Regal. Yep. And others who said, we're, we're not going to run Universal movies now because Universal bypassed us on this. What kind of leverage do you think the theater owners have over the distribution companies like, like Disney and Universal to make that threat stick? Double back to the earnings call here. Chapek went out of his way to basically say, look, we respect the theatrical window experience. And you don't get a movie like Avengers Endgame, which became the highest grossing motion picture in Hollywood history with, without the cooperation mm. of... Not not inflation adjusted for inflation. I actually checked this out yesterday. Mm-hmm. Still gone with the wind, adjusted for inflation. That's great to hear. Okay. And ticket sales. Oh. Still mm-hmm. gone with the wind. But Deadline just did a breakdown of last year's biggest hits and biggest flops and even factoring in 
what it cost to make Endgame, which was $350 million, Len. And along with promotion and the cut for ex exhibitors, the company still cleared a $900 million profit on that film. So that's with the help of the exhibitors. Now, to pivot back to Universal here, there's a number of folks who are already going, I get what AMC said. I get what the folks at Cinemark who own the Regal Theater chain said. Likewise, the European Theater Unions it's like, okay, everybody got to say something angry. But, the, you know, the hard reality is next year, if we're back in business, inside of one three-month-long period, Len, uh, mm -hmm. I want to say in May, Universal drops Fast and Furious 9. June is Jurassic World Dominion. And then July is the fourth, fifth Despicable Me film, Minions, The Rise of Gru. <laughs> All three of those. Minions, The Rise of Skywalker. <laughs> yeah, but everybody's rising these days. What can I tell you? Yeah. Those are three guaranteed billion dollar earners. Coupled with the fact that if you, you talk realistically with exhibitors, they don't make any money off of ticket sales. They make money off of popcorn, you know, that, that $10 tub of popcorn and that $5 soda. So by the time those $3 billion earning films come over the, the hill, it's like, okay, all right, I, I said a couple of things, <laughs> you know, please yeah. disregard, give me your movie. But on the other hand, Universal, uh, Jeff Shell, the guy who's in charge of this, isn't kidding around since as far back as 2016, he's been talking about shortening the theatrical window. Jeff would like to see it go from the current 90 days to having it cleaved in half, at least cleaved in half to 45 days and possibly- That makes sense to me. And possibly push it as low as 30 days. I mean, there are a lot of films that where, that where you've captured 80 or 90% of the box office Absolutely. in the 30 days and yeah. you'd be better off. And the other thing that would do too is it would allow for more films to be shown in theaters, which is a good thing for the movie going public. You're not wrong. When you're a dinosaur and the pesky little mammals keep running between your feet, you, yeah, you make yeah, noise. Yeah. What can I tell you? By the way, Jim, uh, the reason why I know the uh, the ticket sales mm -hmm. thing is Laurel and I were talking about it yesterday. Do you know how many Disney movies are in the top 25 all-time ticket sales list? Where does Snow White fit in there? How did Number 10. How did you know that? The 10th best-selling movie ticket movie. Mm -hmm. Of all time, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. So, Gone with the Wind, number one, yep. 202 million mm -hmm. tickets sold. Not Nothing's even close. The thing that's close, mm -hmm. number two, Star, War, Star Wars Episode Four, okay. New Hope, 178.5 mm -hmm. million. So, 25, 24 million away, mm -hmm. not even close. Yep. More than 10% of a gap mm -hmm. between in Gone with the Wind. Number three, The Sound of Music. Yeah. The movie that sold the third most tickets all time. Mm -hmm. Sound of Music would not have made my top 10 list. Uh, number four, E.T., The Extraterrestrial. Mm -hmm. Number five, Titanic. Number six, The Ten Commandments. Uh, I, think, I think this whole Bible thing is going to be popular, Jim. <laughs> um, seven, Jaws. Okay. Eight, you would not have guessed it, Dr. Zhivago. Oh. Nine, The Exorcist, a movie I still cannot watch in one sitting. Got to get up and walk around because it makes me nervous. You're a smart man. Uh, ten, mm -hmm. and, uh, ten, we said Snow White. Mm -hmm. 11, Star Wars The Force Awakens sold 108 million tickets, wow. barely beating out. Mm -hmm. Number 12, 101 Dalmatians. You know, if you're looking at Snow White, or more for that matter, if you're looking at Gone with the Wind, that's back in the day when a, a movie theater ticket, you know, top dollar was a quarter. But still, they sold the tickets, yep. mm -hmm. right? Yep. So number, uh, so, uh, number 12, 101 Dalmatians. Mm -hmm. Number 13, Avatar. 
By the way, uh, Jim, yesterday, so we're recording this on Thursday. Yesterday on Wednesday, mm-hmm. Gizmodo, uh, the website, ran an article that said this, it's the 10-year anniversary of us talking about Avatar 2 or something like that, or the nine-year anniversary <laughs> of the first time we ran the Avatar sequel. Uh, <laughs> so they did this whole, this whole thing of like all of the things that have happened yeah. since we st- first started talking about the Avatar sequel. Anyway, yeah. number 14, Star Wars Episode Five. Number 15, Ben-Hur, who beats by, by a comfortable... 3.8 million tickets sold, Avengers Endgame, which had 94.2 million tickets. Wow. Okay. I know. Ben-Hur sold more tickets than Avengers Endgame. It's the chariot uh, racing sequence. Uh, number 16, Star Wars Episode Six: Return of the Jedi. Mm-hmm. Number 17, the original Jurassic Park. Number 18, uh, Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. 19, The Lion King. Mm-hmm. And number 20, uh, I'll give you a hint on this one. Uh, Mandy Patinkin did the uh, did the soundtrack and won an Academy Award for it. <laughs> Not Yentl. <laughs> the, the Sting. Oh, oh, wow. Okay. I'll close this out by saying, I'll just do the, the, the next couple. Raiders of the Lost Ark, number 21. The Graduate, number 22. Fantasia, number 24. Okay. Number 25, Ronald Reagan's magnum opus, <laughs> This is the Army. <laughs> Holy cow! I know it's a fascinating list. We, I could, I mean, you could probably, you could, I could probably could have picked out maybe ten or fifteen. Yeah, of those. You, you could have just said the Star Wars movies and you know the Avengers movies and you know Jaws mm-hmm. and gotten most of it, okay. right? But yeah, the Disney movies were really surprising in that list. Hundred One Dalmatians did that much business. I know, and you always hear the mantra coming out of Disney to the effect that Fantasia, you know, was a noble failure. It didn't do all that well in theaters. Exactly what Laurel what Laurel said yesterday. She's like, I thought Fantasia was a was a financial was a flop. Yeah. Like, yeah, it sold a lot of tickets. It just cost a lot of money to put on. Because yeah. remember you said that I think you talked about in a a couple episodes ago, the uh, the Fantasy House. Yeah, the hundred thousand dollars per theater, you know, back in Yeah, a million dollars in today's money. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and th- in fact, actually you talked about it on the uh the show related to the, the first part of the Mr. Toad. We did. We did. Show that we did last week. Mm-hmm. There you go. Yep. All right, Jim, let's uh let's take a quick commercial break. When we come back, we'll finish the history of Mr. Toad's Wild Ride and we'll go scene by scene through the ride. We're all destined for hell anyways. We'll be right back. On last week's episode, we started the history of Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. And you gave us the the history of how Walt wanted to build the theme park. We ended with the plans for at 1953, at the point in 1953, where Disneyland had outlined its rides for Fantasyland and Mr. Toad wasn't in it. Yeah. Though that changed as... Walt came up against the hard reality of kind of when the prospectus goes out in 53, he finally lines up the financing in 54, but ABC Paramount puts up $500,000, but promises to come through with an additional 4.5. There's 500,000 from Western publishing. Basically, Walt has $7 million as he's going out the door. But the hard reality is he, he finds out very quickly that 
that much money, especially, yeah, and you're not building a movie set. You're not building something where, oh, that looks lovely, and open the door, and there's nothing behind it. There has to be mm-hmm. a concrete foundation. There has to be electrical wiring. There has to be plumbing. And so Walt <laughs> immediately becomes this sweaty, desperate guy who's, you know, I've already burned through this mountain of money. And, and initially, remember, we were talking about how Peter Pan was the fly-through, Alice in Wonder was the walk-through, mm-hmm. and, you know, Snow White was the ride-through. So about this same time, Arrow Development, which is a, a theme park construction company, or excuse me, an amusement park construction company uh, based out of Mountain View, California. I want to say the gentleman's name is Ed Morgan, and he sees a newspaper article about Disneyland. And he sees that Walt is planning a stern wheeler uh, steamboat as part of the park. And so he mm-hmm. writes a letter to Walt Disney Productions and says, hey, we just built something like that for another amusement park. And they write back and go, well, thank you for getting in touch with us. But we've already made arrangements with Long Beach Harbor to have the keel built there. And our artisans at the studio are going to build the superstructure. But what else do you have? And... A contingent from WED goes up to uh, Mountain View, California, and Ed w- okay. walks them around Aero Development. And what they basically say is, show us everything. You know, show us every ride system that you build. They do that and they go, okay, thank you. And they leave and Ed's like, well, what was that all about? And hmm. within a couple of days, an envelope shows up from Walt Disney Productions. And inside of it is concept art of the Canary Yellow Roadster from the Wind of the Willows section of The Adventures of Ichabod, Mr. Toad. And they're like, what can you do with okay. this? So, so, they, so they send you a picture, they send them a picture of Mr. Toad's car. Yeah. And it's just basically, could you build something that looks like this, but put it on top of one of the, you know, your off-the-shelf ride systems that you already make for other amusement parks? Because that that's the, the other hard reality. Walt is now looking at how far his money is going to go, and it's not going to go that far. So all of this stuff that Walt was going to build that was one end of a kind, unique, amazing. Now it's like, what can I afford? And what he could afford is off-the-shelf ride systems that rolled past plywood scenery that the studio's artists would paint and make look amazing. But it's still chunks of plywood. And the one place that Walt could splurge was like, we'll buy the -the off-the-shelf ride system, but the ride vehicle itself will be as close to on model for the film as we can do it. So for Snow White's Adventures, they made an old car that looked like something that the dwarves would, you know, guests could ride in, but still look like something the dwarves would push around their mind. For Peter Pan, they built a flying uh, pirate galleon that drew its inspiration from Captain Hook's Jolly Roger. Toad is not in the 1953 prospectus. But they come back from Mountain View and go, well, Walt, he has a lot of car systems. <laughs> and you know, and it then becomes, well, what film do we have that has cars in it? And it's like, well, we have the shorts, the little blue coupe, and we have Mr. Toad. Which, again, remember, Walt doesn't actually like and is like, Ugh, all right, fine, we'll do a Toad ride. They literally go forward at this point. They've locked in their July 1955 opening of the park. They're watching the Ichabod and Mr. Toad film. They're pulling out all of the storyboards and they're looking for inspiration for individual scenes and that sort of thing. But at the same time, there was very early on a discussion about aero development also makes roller coasters. 
they especially make a great little wild mouse ride, which if you've ever been to DCA, the, the goofy sky school land. Yeah, is it classic? Is it classic? Uh, yeah, the classic uh, wild, wild mouse. mouse well, yeah, I mean, well, you know from, from doing all the parks in England, that's kind of a standard of the industry. But the notion is these are always done outside. And the Imagineers like, wow, what if we were to do a coaster, but do it indoors? I mean, we could legitimately have a Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. This would be a breakthrough for this park. And they worked up a number of show scenes for the attraction where, for example, you'd be at the top of a hill and look down and there'd be like a police barricade in front of you two cars blocking the road and you'd begin to, mm -hmm. to drop down the hill and only at the very last second, Len, would they pull out of your way and the coaster car could then sail through that scene. Ah. But it would have been cool. But Walt, it's like, geez, I don't know. My problem here is that you guys are talking about doing this inside a ride building. It's one thing for this to be outside and people walk up to it and see the cars moving around outside and know, okay, it's a coaster. It's quite another thing to put this thing inside and people just see the Mr. Toad car roll up and they get in it and not know there's a coaster inside. And I'm worried about how little kids are going to react. Right. And I'm especially concerned about our older guests, whether they'd be up to the, to, to the stress of this. And so it was Walt himself that shut it down. But they had worked up all of these thrilling effects. And so it's like, okay, so how do we do this for a kind of slow moving. I mean, you know, that's the thing. It's a standard dark ride vehicle mm -hmm. that works off of a buzz bar. The idea is the electricity that powers the attraction comes from the buzz bar that then goes into the electric motor that pushes it along. There was this, this fascinating time in the com company where they decided that when it came to capacity, Walt well, Disney World's original country bear jamboree only had the one theater. That opens October of 1971 line, but they're already constructing mm -hmm. Country Bear out in California, which would open in March of 72. How'd that go, Jim? <laughs> and that's the really tough part of the story. They were so convinced it was not only going to be a hit in Florida, which it was, but it was going to be an absolute smash hit in California. So they built mm -hmm. two identical shows and put them back to back. Yep. And this was a conceit with Toad because of where it was positioned inside of Dis Disneyland right from the get-go. It was a hugely popular ride. So when they put Toad into Walt Disney World, it's like, wow, we, well, what we learned from California, we need to do increased capacity. So they put two mm -hmm. versions of that attraction side by side. And in fact, they did much the same thing with the Walt Disney story down on Main Street. They went from one theater in California to two in Florida. And the only place where they actually needed the capacity was, in fact, Florida. Mm -hmm. It was a popular ride, but in a lot of ways, almost in spite of the film, right. you know, rather than a celebration of the film. Especially Mr. Toad. Mm -hmm. It's one of those, uh, I think Mr. Toad in Splash Mountain, maybe Tron, mm -hmm. are the examples where the popularity of the attraction mm -hmm. doesn't measure or, or measures much more than the the popularity of the film, mm -hmm. right? Like, like Mr. Toad, people love Mr. Toad. How many people have really seen the Ichabod films sequence? Yeah. Right? Same thing with Splash Mountain. Mm -hmm. I mean, millions more people have been on Splash Mountain than have seen Song of the South. Especially now. Yeah. Yeah, it's just not going to happen now. Uh, well, anyway, to, to, to get back to the early, early days of Mr. Toad, again, remember, this is basically an empty show building right. with a track that's been set up and you're rolling past plywood. But... Toad over the years was the attraction where every two to three years 
They'd go back in, they'd reconfigure, they'd replace flat plywood with dimensional props, they'd reposition things. In fact, there's a huge discussion among Toad fans about when exactly they went from the little flat plywood devils to the three-dimensional ones that now, whenever they pop up in pop culture auctions, you know, command top dollar. Let's go through the show scenes real quick, and because mm-hmm. and, uh, I'll leave you here comments on what exactly has changed over the years mm-hmm. from it. So by my count, there are uh, 21 or 22 uh, different areas or show scenes within Mr. Toad, which is amazing because it's a two-minute ride. Yeah, but the way Disney looks at it is there are show beats within extended scenes. Right. Just in the Toad Hall you know, sequence itself. Yeah, Toad Hall is where you board the ride vehicle. Mm-hmm. And then you you begin to roll through the mansion itself, and they have individual prop pieces that will appear to totter on you. And then from there, you basically burst out, I want to say, through the kitchen, don't you? So uh, you start in Toad Hall, then the first room in Toad Hall, you inside you see, is the library. You have uh, Angus McBadger on a ladder. Mm -hmm. And to your point, this is the first time you see sort of the central effect of the ride that you almost run into things right before they get out of your way, mm-hmm. right? So that's the thing that the effect that Disney had always maintained for the, for the ride. Mm-hmm. You exit the library through the fireplace. Yep. And you're, you're briefly back in the loading area mm-hmm. where you make, by the way, at this point, you've already made one, two, three, four turns oh, yeah. in, in, in a room. And a, there are, uh, I think there are uh, roughly two turns for every room. I think there are, are 40, between 40 and 45 turns. In the, in the 22 little areas of Mr. Toad. That was the one thing that got carried over from the wild mouse version of the ride. It's like... The turns, yeah. We can't do the dips and the dives, but we can do the turning. Yeah, and that, that, that definitely happens. All right, so you go through the fireplace. Uh, you're back in the loading area. Mm-hmm. You go past uh, what is supposed to be a falling suit of armor. Mm-hmm. I've never seen this effect work. <laughs> I don't know that it does. Yeah. I would love to do it. Then uh, you, you're back inside the building down what I like to call the Hall of Weasels. <laughs> it, it sounds like Parliament, Jim. It sounds like Parliament. There we go. Okay. Then you have a mole who is eating in a dining room, but it looks like the Crystal Palace. Mm-hmm. So lots of, lots of glass windows. Uh, we head on out onto the farmland around Toad Hall. We see the police for the first time. Mm-hmm. They figure in in the plot of the second half of the ride. We go through the countryside to a waterfront where we avoid running off a pier that looks like it's out. This is one of the moments in the ride where they've, they've actually put the equivalent of paving stones. So you get that slightly rougher ride to sort of simulate the notion of you rolling over logs. Oh. Uh, I forgot about that, but there, there is an effect there. So we, um, we go along the waterfront, we dip into a warehouse mm-hmm. of some kind, and there's explosives all around <laughs> us. We decide that the best way out of the warehouse is to bust our way through the wall, mm-hmm which causes a huge explosion. Amazingly, it doesn't kill us. Mm-hmm. We are back in town. We go through a couple of rooms that look uh, like a pub. It has a nice spinning glass effect. We go, go through town. We end up in court where we see a judge. And, we're, and he, the only, I think his only word there is guilty. Mm-hmm. What are we guilty of? I mean, lots of things, Jim. I, lots of things. <laughs> but We all carry our burdens, Len. Yeah, so but what are we convicted of? And Do you know in the ride? Is there... In the original film, of course, you're, you're accused of theft of a, a motor car. In this case, it, it, the insinuation is you've caused so much property damage that that's why you're being... And, of course, you then proceed to drive out of the court and cause even more property damage. Jim, is, is Mr. Toad the original Fast and Furious? <laughs> 
I think Vin Diesel's a bit more buff than Jay Thaddeus, but I, I could be wrong. All right. So we, uh, we end up in prison, but we escape somehow, probably in a car. And in our escape, we unfortunately head right into the path of an oncoming train. We die and we go to hell where we see the judge from the courtroom as the devil. And then I think the ride ends at that point, right? That's the last scene, right? It does, but we get our dimensional devil friends that pop up and down. Which brings us to, I mean, again, we've talked at length previous about the whole Save Mr. Toad effort that happened, you know, at, at Walt Disney World. But when the attraction closed and they began the change out to the many adventures of Winnie the Pooh, they, they were actually imaginaries who flew all the way from California to Florida so that he could personally go into the attraction and pull rank and mm -hmm. claim a devil. That's I work for this right. company, you know, damn it. <laughs> and I, I'm claiming that. I want that. For a time at Imagineering, you could see truly how much clout a particular Imagineer had within the company if you went into their office and they had one of, I want to say there were, were six devils on each side of the Walt Disney World, you know, that would pop up. So there were only 12 devils to be grabbed. And that's why, again, why they commence, you know, such top dollar when they do finally, you know, when they do occasionally pop up on the, the you know, the pop culture circuit. That explains how uh, Sam Simon mm -hmm. ended up with one, the writer from The Simpsons. Yeah. So apparently, apparently when he passed away in 2015, mm -hmm. one of the devil figures for Mr. Toad in Walt Disney World was auctioned off to support the Sam Simon Charitable Giving Foundation. Mm -hmm. It's paper mache. The devils are made of paper mache. Yep. They are 12 inches deep by 24 inches wide mm -hmm. by 14 inches tall. Jim, how much did one devil figure from Mr. Toad's Wild Ride go for? The estimate, the pre-auction estimate at Sotheby's, Jim, $2,500. What did it sell for? Did it make it as high as 20? 10 grand, Jim, 10 grand. Yeah. Ten grand yeah. for a for a paper mache devil from Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. That's kind of amazing. For those of you who've experienced the Simpsons ride, it's, it's an equal opportunity offender over at Universal. There's the sequence that's set in the SeaWorld arena. There's also Captain Dinosaur's Pirate Ride, which is the complete town set. From uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, the only difference is you, you, really? you're going backwards through the ride. So you make it, you go through the village and you make it to the boat that's firing on the village. But at the tail end of the SeaWorld sequence, the killer clown character, this uh, Sideshow Bob, cuts open the, st the stands and you, 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 get, you appear to be plummeting to your death. In fact, you fall so far, Len, you actually see the devils in hell from Mr. Toad. So once again, a Disney reference worked into the ride because these guys wanted to make fun of everybody in the business, in, including Universal, which is why at one point, I think there's a billboard that says, please send money to Universal Studios. <laughs> That's great. At this point in the history of the attraction, of course, you know, we lost the version of Walt Disney World for, for Winnie the Pooh. And in fact, mm. there was, you know, this fascinating time where they actually pulled the Toad Hall out of Storybook Land Canal Boat Ride to bring in the Agrabah, you know, to celebrate Aladdin. And, and remember, mm. that was pretty much the thinking with the many adventures of Winnie the Pooh at Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom. Let's go with the more popular franchise. 
And same thing. They pulled Toad Hall to put Aladdin into Storybook and Alba, right? But again, there was such a protest that Toad Hall was sitting backstage. At one point, it was headed to the archive, and they were like, oh, they just will not stop. And so they went in during the very next rehab and walked the length of the canal, and it's like, is there enough space in here somewhere for Toad Hall so we can put it back so the letters will stop? And that's what they did. They actually, you know, it, it was pulled out and put back in. You can go and, you know, visit Toad Hall even today when you're riding in the storybook canal boat ride. All right. That's a, that's a great story, Jim. And on our future show, we'll talk about the how Paris got a, an actual Toad Hall where you can go eat. Though I, I don't imagine Moly oh. is there, but eh, we'll check. So, <laughs> All right, folks, that's going to do it for the Disney Dish show today. Please head on over to DisneyDish.BandCamp.com where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes. Some of those upcoming shows uh, tell you about a secret 1972 memo that Jim found detailing the rides Disney was planning to build in Orlando. On next week's regular show, we're going to get back to your listener questions. And you can find more of Jim at jimhillmedia.com and more of me at touringplans.com. We're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who's giving the opening remarks at this year's Old Cedar Avenue Bridge Celebration, now rescheduled for Saturday, September 26th at 2 p.m. in beautiful downtown Bloomington, Minnesota. While Aaron's doing that, please head on over to iTunes at Radar Show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Genesis Len, we will see you on the next show.